So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's on page uh, 1,151 of the Bibles around you. And it'll definitely help you to have it open. And we're going to read uh, verses 14 to 22. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. Um, And it starts with a pretty clear command. So uh, let's pick it up from verse 14. And the Bible says this, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, we're going to pick up uh, this passage. We're going to try and understand. And really the big command at the start of verse 14 is what we need to get our heads around this afternoon. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now, I want you to see something here. Paul has labelled this thing as idolatry. What What the Corinthian church labelled it as is something different. Flick back to chapter 8, verse 1. If you've been around for the last few weeks, you'll know that this has been, this big chunk in the middle of 1 Corinthians is all about idolatry. In chapter 8, verse 1, he was what the Corinthians were talking about. They're talking about food sacrificed to idols. That's their question. Paul, this food, you know, this temple worship, this idol worship, this food, can we join in with that, Paul? It's just food sacrificed to idols. They are playing down the seriousness of the issue. What Paul does is plays up the seriousness of the issue. You want to talk about food sacrifice to idols, I'm going to talk about idolatry. I want to call a spade a spade. I want to tell you what it really is. And Paul has been arguing to them that this is not a small thing that doesn't matter. This is a big deal that really matters. It matters because in chapter 8, you will do harm to other people if you indulge in this. You'll drag other people away with you. In chapter 9, because you will not be able to save others, which is your whole point of existing, is to save other people. Chapter 10, you're placing yourself in danger, is what we saw last week. And this is the final part of his argument about why you flee from idolatry. That's what we're going to investigate this afternoon. The Corinthian church have a very Nike attitude towards life. Just do it. Okay, that's their attitude. Just do it. If it feels good, it's fine. It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. Paul says, 
Stop adopting the Nike attitude, put on the Nike trainers and start running. Flee. Run from idolatry. Get away as far as you can. You need to put as much distance as you can between yourself and idolatry. And we're going to see why. And I have to warn you, this is going to challenge us a little bit to think. In fact, it might even change your view of reality. I realize that's a big thing to say. But I don't know what version of reality you're living with at the moment. You may think, whoa, 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 this is a big philosophical question. Well, yes, it is. What reality is real? And we sit there and we go, well, it's okay, it's fairly simple. I know what's real. This is real. The stuff that I can see and taste and touch, that's real. Well, I want to suggest that there is a more significant version of reality that we need to embrace. So let me, we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 10, okay, I promise we are, but I want to do a little bit of bigger thinking, okay, a bit of theological understanding to push us a little bit before we then see what is really going on in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Because what is going to be key in 1 Corinthians 10 is this idea of participating. I don't know if you noticed it when I read it. Um, He says, you participate in the blood and the body of Christ when you eat. Then he talks about, in verse 18, those who eat those sacrifices participate in the altar. Then he talks about participating in the table of demons. I want to take that idea of participating and use that to help us to understand something about reality. Okay, let me me do some some work on this. Right. The basic worldview all around us that we breathe in every single day is materialism. That is, that what is real is what you can see, taste and touch, right? That all that exists is matter and energy. That's it. That's the worldview. That's what's real. Okay, that's that's all around. That's what everybody around us uh, in London, that's the, the way lots of people are living. Now, if you've been around church for a little while, you might say, well, hang on, I think there might be more to life than that. I think there might be something else. But this is the mistake that I think we make. We have material, the material world, and then we have this kind of spiritual world over here. And this is what I want to call um, disconnectedism. That is, that there is this kind of physical stuff of this world... And then over here, there's the spiritual stuff which includes God and perhaps angels and demons and other stuff. And it's sort of over here. But they don't really connect with one another. right? They're just pretty separate. And so you go through life and you say, well, this stuff here is, you know, sometimes I'll engage in this thing and, and this stuff over here doesn't really matter. That is how the Corinthians thought. So they had a view that said the physical, the real world isn't that significant. That doesn't, that's sort of neutral. It doesn't really matter. So we can sort of engage in stuff in the physical world and it doesn't really... Remember when we were talking about the whole sexuality stuff that we saw in chapters 5, 6 and 7? That was because they're saying, actually, the, that's just physical. It's just this world stuff. It doesn't connect with the spiritual world. I think we can be in danger of acting like that as Christians. 
that we can adopt that sort of an idea. That basically there's my life, and then we add on some spiritual bits over here, but we don't really see how they cross over. Well, I want to suggest that we need to adopt a different view, which is what I want to call connectedism. That is... (laughs) Sorry, I know these are not good words. All right? That is that the spiritual and the physical world do not exist independent from one another, but actually are intimately connected with one another. That they relate to one another in a powerful way. See, the Bible is very clear that the physical world, all that you can see, is not all that there is. There is an unseen reality, an unseen spiritual world. So this world is physical. We can see it, but this is not everything. There is a world of angels, a world of demons. I, I wonder, do you believe in angels? Do you believe in demons? Do you believe in an unseen spiritual world? Because the worldview of the Bible is that that world is just as real as the seen physical world. And what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 10 is he's saying, you need to understand how those two things connect. How those two things join together. And you need to understand that just because something is physical, it doesn't mean that it has no relationship to a spiritual reality. Let me uh, just show you one passage where uh, this might help to see it a little bit more clearly. Come to the book of 2 Kings with me. Um, 2 Kings chapter 6, page 373. Page 373, 2 Kings chapter 6. And uh, there's a prophet called Elisha. Um, and Elisha has a servant, and they get in a bit of trouble, and they are in, they're surrounded, basically. Um, and they surround the city. Have a look from verse 15. When the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha's servant, got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, if you stop there, if you're the servant, you'd go, nope, there's two of us. One, two, me and you, there's a lot of them. You're wrong. Then Elisha prays. This is, I don't think we have any, we we miss this so much in our worldview as, as Christians. Verse 17, Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And in that moment, Elisha's servant is given a glimpse of what is unseen, is given a glimpse of a greater spiritual reality, which is just as real but which was unseen. And he needed to see the unseen. He needed 
He needed to understand what was beyond the physical, visible world in order to stand and in order to not be afraid. And what you discover over and over again in the Bible is that there is a connection between the physical and the spiritual world. They don't exist in different realities. They're one and the same reality. You see this all over the place. In the book of Job, there's a man who suffers and in his suffering you then get a glimpse of into heaven where you see what's really going on. In the book of Daniel, you have a war on earth between human kings and then suddenly we're given a vision of a war in heaven which relates to the war on earth. These two things are not separate. There's a connectedness. There is a participation, a communion, a joining, a fellowship between the physical and the spiritual world. Now this is, this is big stuff, right? This is brain-stretching stuff. This isn't, hey, come to church and let's have a nice time saying how much Jesus loves us, which he does. This is, let's let God's word show us what we cannot see for ourselves. What a great prayer Elisha prayed. That's what, we, that's what I've been praying. Lord, open our eyes to see, to see a spiritual reality that is unseen to our human physical eyes. Okay, so we've got that kind of stuff in our heads right now. Come back to, um, come back to chapter 14. I'm now going to show you why that sort of worldview lies behind what Paul is saying here and why that's important in Paul's argument about idolatry. Let me just say, there is a fourth ism, um, which is freaking out-ism, uh, which kind of goes one step further. Right? So you have materialism that says, this is all there is. You have disconnectedism, they're separate. You have connectedism, which says the two relate and are one reality. Then you have freaking outism, which is just like completely bonkers and sees bonkers stuff everywhere and runs around going, there's a demon under that chair, like that sort of stuff, all right? So we're not going all the way over there, but we are not going all the way over here. We want to let God's word show us that there is a connectedness between two realities which make one reality which we have to understand. Okay, let's see how this plays out in verse 15. And we know that Paul isn't into bonkersism, freaking outism, because in verse 15 he says, I speak to sensible people. This is not mad, crazy Christian stuff. This is sensible stuff. Paul, an academic, intellectual man, says this is sensible. I want you to think about this reasonably. I'm not asking you to blindly believe in fairies. Oh yes, there's fairies. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying you have to understand the way the world really is. By the way, materialism is quite a new worldview. The idea that there is no spiritual world. The predominant worldviews of most people through most of human history has been that the spiritual exists. That's not a weird thing. Let's have a look at this then. What he does is he gives three examples of this uh, participation between the physical and the spiritual. And we're going to examine these three and you'll see that it's building up to the one with demons, which is where he lands, which is why it's important for us to understand why idolatry is so serious. I'm really hoping this will all make sense at some point and come together. So the first example he gives um, is 
communion. That is the Lord's Supper. That is eating bread and wine as Jesus told us to do the night before he died. He took bread, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, eat this. Then he gave them a cup and he said, drink this. Let's look what he says. Verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Okay, what is, what is going on? What, what, what is Paul saying? Well, look, here is some bread, okay? This is physical bread, real, okay? You can see it. We're going to eat some in a bit, all right? And the danger is that we say, oh, it's only bread, And Paul wants to say, no, I want you to see that when you eat this, there's something bigger going on. There is a connectedness with an unseen spiritual reality. I I hope that we will take communion later differently because of what we're about to see about what's really happening in communion. Paul starts by talking about the cup, the cup of thanksgiving, the cup of blessing it is. And he says that when we drink this cup, which Jesus said represented his blood, we participate with the blood of Christ. There is a connection with the spiritual reality of the blood of Christ. That is... Jesus came into this world and shed his blood on the cross to pay for your sin. His death pays so that you could be forgiven. That's how it works. And his blood was shed at the cross and you are connected to him by trusting him, by faith, the Bible says. And one of the ways he has given us to express and to enjoy that connection is communion. It's not the only way, but it's one of the ways, a precious way. And when you drink the cup, we might say, well, it's just, it's just wine, isn't it? I mean, it's actually, it's not even wine, it's just grape juice. It's just, it's just grape juice, isn't it? Yes, it's just grape juice. That's all it is. Nothing happens to it. Nothing changes in it. There's nothing magical or special about it. But man, it's not just grape juice. Because of the connectedness to an unseen reality that Christ shed his blood so that you could be forgiven. And as you drink the cup, you participate, you enjoy, you have communion with him. There's a spiritual reality. There is something going on which is so much deeper than just drinking some stuff. There is a danger with communion that we turn it into a, well, it's just a little ritual that we do. Or that it's just a, we're just remembering. It's just a way of remembering. Paul says, no, it's more than just a way of remembering. It is about remembering, but it's about participating. It's about enjoying and sharing and having fellowship with Christ as we eat and drink. 
because of this connection between the physical and the spiritual. And similarly with the bread. On the cross, when Jesus died, his body was broken for you. For you. He loves you. He loves you so passionately. He loves you so desperately that he would give his body so that it would be broken so that you don't have to be punished. And then he said, I want you to enjoy it. I want you to participate in it. I want you to feed on it. There's a spiritual reality to communion that we mustn't miss. And it's that, then, in verse 17, which unites us to one another. Because we're one loaf, we're one body. We eat from one loaf, we share one loaf, we're one body. There's a spiritual unity to us. It's not just that we're friends, we've got to understand this. I mean, we are friends, you know, and all that. But there's something about being a church family which is so much more. There is a spiritual reality by which we are connected to one another and joined to one another because we're joined to Christ. And if you're joined to Christ, then you, if I'm joined to Christ and you're joined to Christ, then we're joined to one another. And therefore, this is not a meal that we sit and do on our own at home. You don't go to the cupboard and pour yourself some grape juice and some bread and go, oh, let's just have a little communion with myself. Because you do it with one another. It's a one another meal. Because it's a spiritual reality. Now please, hear me very clearly. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the wine turns into the blood of Christ. Transubstantiation. And that the bread turns into the body of Christ. That is not taught in the Bible. We do not believe that. I'm not saying that. But we swing so far to the materialism end that just goes, well, it's just a bit of bread and wine. Oh, there's something so precious in this meal. There's an unseen spiritual reality going on. But let's, let's move on to the second example. We're going to land all this. Remember, we're building up to idolatry is the key. Um, verse 18, he gives another example, um, which is the Old Testament sacrifice. So look at uh, verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? You see, the sacrifice in the Old Testament, so before Jesus came, there was still a way for sin to be dealt with. It was a sacrifice offered on the altar. And some of those sacrifices, not all of them, There were different rules for different sacrifices. But some of them involved the worshipper coming and bringing their sacrifice and then eating it. And as they ate it, that physical eating, it wasn't just, well, that's just nice. It it wasn't just that it kind of, it was like a picture illustration of something. It was actually a participation in what was happening at the altar. It showed that That sacrifice represented them. There was a connection between those things. It showed that they were truly forgiven. And Paul writes to him and says, you're sensible people, you know this. You know that the worshipper who eats the offering is connected to the altar. You know that. You know there's a connection between those two things. 
And then he gets to the big one, and this is what he's been driving towards, okay? And this is the final piece of his argument of why idolatry is so, so serious. And that is, uh, he comes to idolatry. So let's look at verse 19. Paul says, Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. Okay, so this is, he's not saying that the food and the, and the sacrifice, that, there's, that the idol really exists or that it's real. But look what he says. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. When they go to the idol temple and offer and eat and join in with the idol worship, They're saying, it doesn't matter because it's just part of the physical world. The idols aren't real. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Paul says, no, because there's a connection. There's a participation. You can't separate the physical from the spiritual. And as you engage in the physical, you are engaging in the spiritual that lies behind it. And Paul says, behind idolatry lies a demon. Now, at this point, we need to uh, just have a quick little uh, demon moment. Not a demon moment as such, but a a, a demon thought. No, that's bad as well. The trouble is, as soon as we hear demon, you have an image in your head of what a demon looks like, right? And my guess is that your image of a demon doesn't come from the Bible, but comes from some picture or film or something that you've seen of a little thing whooping around going, doing stuff. Um, And the problem is that it kind of, because we kind of cartoonize demons or we we trivialize them into a point where we think they're not that dangerous. But the Bible teaches that when God made the heavens and the earth, when God made the physical and the and the spiritual realm, when God made the visible and the invisible, because he made it all, he made the heavens and the earth, he made it all, when he made it all, he made and filled the physical creation and the spiritual realm with angels, spiritual beings. Angels just means messengers, servants. And the angel's job was to worship him, was to be his servants. But, and we're not told a huge amount of detail, but there are indications that there was a rebellion among the angels. That there was a fall. That there were angels who grasped at God's throne. Pride. And a number of the angelic beings fell. And that is what we now would refer to as demons. Evil spirits. Unseen, but very real. The Bible talks a lot about the reality of the devil, Satan, the destroyer. The Bible says he's like a lion roaring, prowling around. But you've got to know this about Satan. He's not like God. You see, God is omnipresent. That means God is everywhere all the time because God is awesome. The devil isn't. 
He can only be in one place at one time. Because he, he, he's not God. But he has an army of demons. And you see it through the page of the Gospels. People who are possessed by a demon. People who are filled with a demon. Who are under demonic power. And we see so little of this in our culture. I know that this is, I know that this is so far from most of our normal experience. I know that most of us did not wake up this morning and, and give demons a second thought. I realize that. But Paul says we need to. Not in a freaky outism, but in a connectedism. In a way that says there is a connection between the spiritual world and our physical world. And demons only have two weapons. Demons either deceive or destroy. They're liars and murderers. Their father is the father of lies. Their father was a murderer from the beginning. And so demons will either deceive or seek to destroy. That's all they do. And one of the chief ways by which demons deceive is through idolatry. By causing people to want to worship something other than God. So whenever a human being finds something or someone more worthy of worship than the God who created them, that is because of a demon deception. And so Paul says, when you join in with idol sacrifice, it's not a small thing. There is a connection with a demon. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You can't sit down at one minute and have communion with Jesus and then the next minute have communion with demons. It's completely, completely out. This is why he says you flee from idolatry. You flee from idolatry. And for the guys in Corinth, they've got to get this clear. And then verse 22, you get this striking end to this passage. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Do you ever think of God as being jealous? Have a look at um, Exodus 34 with me just for a second. This is the last place I'm going to get you to turn. Have a look at Exodus 34. It's on page 93. And he says, in verse 14, Exodus 34, verse 14, Do not worship any other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Whoa! Whoa! His name is Jealous. That's a strange name for God, right? 
I mean, some parents call their kids strange things. Do you know, apparently last year, no one called their child Nigel. This is a disaster. <laughs> this is like serious. Nigels are going to die out unless... I felt like we should do something about it. But anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but names, here is God's name. That is God's character. God's name represents his character. And his name is jealous. He is a jealous God. Now our problem is we go, well, that doesn't sound very nice because jealousy is a bad thing, right? Well, only nasty, nasty, little, small, spiteful jealousy is bad. Yes, when Phil gets a nice new Ferrari... And I go, nah, I hate Phil because Ferrari. Yes, that's not good. Okay? And that is not the sort of jealousy that we're talking about here. We're talking about one who has an absolute right to our worship. Idolatry sounds a lot like adultery. And those two things in the Bible are closely linked. I realise that not. I, I realise that two, when two words sound similar, doesn't always mean that, that they mean the same thing. But here it was useful. Idolatry is very, very similar to adultery. So think of uh, think about my marriage. My wife has the right to my absolute and utter devotion. Absolute, not because she's needy and weak and poor. But because she, that's what she deserves, right? Because that's what I promised. That's, that's the way a covenant relationship works. God has the absolute right to our worship and our devotion, all of it, to all of our hearts. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind. He has the right to all of it, not because he's a needy little God going, oh, I need someone to love me, but because he's so worthy. And when human beings reject the God who is so worthy and run after other things, he is rightly jealous. Rightly jealous. It is a function of his love if I ran off with someone else and Linda went, never mind, you would say, I don't think you love him. Jealousy is part of love. It cannot be moved away from love and because God so passionately loves, he is jealous for our worship. He is jealous for our love. He will not share you with someone else. He does not want part of your worship. He wants all of you. And you say, yeah, yeah, okay, fine, fine, fine. In the spiritual world, that's fine. I'll give them all my worship. No, 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 because you can't split it up. When you go out shopping to buy baked beans, oh, it's just baked beans. It's nothing. No, because there's a connection. Not freaky outism. There's a devil in the baked beans. Not that. <laughs> but there is a connection. Therefore, you can't say that that doesn't really matter. God's not bothered. He is bothered. Worship God as you buy baked beans. And what Paul is saying in Corinth is you are chasing after idols. You are flirting with idolatry. You are setting your hearts on things other than God. And you are arousing his jealousy. 
And it's foolish because you are not stronger than he is. So let's try and land this, okay? Let's try and apply this to ourselves now because I guess our problem is that it's been a while since we've been invited to go and eat food sacrificed to idols at someone's house. Do you want to join me for an idol worship this evening? Well, it's a bit busy. It's been a while, right? It's difficult for us to relate to this, perhaps. Well, the principle, the principle of idolatry, the principle that our hearts find all sorts of other things more attractive to us than God. And that that is a deception of a demon is very relevant. Let me give you some examples. I had a friend called Bill. And Bill was an alcoholic. Bill never planned to be an alcoholic. That was not, it was not his ambition. It was not his dream as a kid. And even when he had his first drink, that was not his plan. But alcohol just became everything to him consumed him and do you know what he used to call that he used to call it his demon drink because behind that addiction stood a demon right so I want to say to you we're kidding ourselves if we think we can flirt with stuff and we go yeah yeah but it won't happen to me it's only it's only this uh, and I, I, fine, I go out and get drunk a bit, but it, I'm not going to get, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm different. I'm the exception. You're so naive. We are so naive when we think that we're stronger than God is. There is a participation, there is a connection between the physical and the spiritual world. The things that we have in our pockets, the phones that we have, there are people who are seeking to catch you and to destroy you and are creating things in order to lure you in, in order to do you harm. And behind that whole world stands a demonic lie. We've got to wake up. We can be so naive. This is why you flee from idolatry. I don't know what it is that you are most likely to get addicted to. I don't know what it is that has a hold on your heart that you say, I'm, I'm going to go after this. You go, no, I, I, I love God, but it's just, you know, it's just a bit of fun. Oh, please, wake up, my dear friends. Flee from idolatry. We're about to eat and drink. We're about to participate in the very body and blood of Christ. And as we do that with one hand, how can we then at the same time Enter into idolatry. Participate with demons. Pursue other things. I guess it's easy to see with addictions and alcohol and drugs and all that sort of stuff. But there's plenty of addictions that are far, far more acceptable in our world. Workaholism. It's funny, isn't it? That's that's okay. I've devoted my life to this thing. This is the thing that gives me meaning and this is it. This is everything that I want. I'm just, it's my work. It's my work. It's my work. Watch out. Don't be deceived. You say, what do you mean I can't do work? Yes, of course you do work. You do work for the glory of God. If you don't know what that means, come on Thursday and Wednesday to focus because that's what we're doing. We're learning how to work for the glory of God. Why? Because the two realities are connected. And if you think your work has nothing spiritual about it, you are so wrong. We've got to learn how to work. I was chatting to someone this week 
Um, it was Ali. And she won't mind me saying this because I asked her. There was a time, and I, I'm telling you it's Ali because if you want to ask her about this, you can. I'm sure she wouldn't mind talking to you afterwards. There was a time when Ali realised that going out shopping for clothes had become way, way too important to her. And so Ali was telling me about a year she spent where she did not, she made the decision to not buy any clothes for a year. Because of this. Because of a thing that says, I don't want for something to have a hold on my heart that is more important to me than Jesus. I'm going to flee from idolatry. I don't know what it is for you. But let's not be naive enough to think it's just a small little thing in a physical world that doesn't really matter because I do the spiritual stuff over here. Those two things are connected. So my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Why don't we pray together and then we're going to have some time to respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that just like Elisha prayed, Lord, open our eyes to see a greater reality. Open our eyes to understand that there is an unseen world, a world of beauty, but also a world of danger. And Father, we pray that we might find such a joy that we participate with Christ, that we get to join with Christ. Father, we also ask that you'd help us not to be naive, not to, be, not to close our eyes to, to things that are dangerous to us. Father, we pray that as a result of these studies in 1 Corinthians, you would set some of us free from addiction. Father, perhaps hidden addictions, secret addictions, which no one else knows about, which perhaps are at a very early stage, which perhaps we're not even clear our addictions yet that we would run to Christ and flee from idolatry. Oh, Father, set us free as we participate with Christ. Father, we thank you for his body and his blood. We thank you that he has the power to set us free. We praise you in his name. Amen.